All right, so last time we were together, we looked at the, that sixth vision of this current cycle that we were in, beginning all the way back in the first verse of chapter 12, this, this series of, of seven visions in this next recapitulating cycle that we've been in, which showed us and revealed to us the great and final harvest. The, the harvest of the grain, picturing the, the gathering of God's faithful, His elect, His, His children from the world, gathering them into glory. And then we saw the gathering of the grapes, the picture of the judgment, God, the, the separation of the wheat and the tares, God grafting and, and, and taking up all of these, these wicked individuals and ultimately bringing them under His divine judgment. This terrifying picture of the final judgment to come where they are pictured as those being pressed out in the wine press of God's judgment. And, and, and uh, uh, just an absolute picture, a terrible picture of the judgment to come. And that marks, in many ways, the end of the age. The gathering of the saints into glory, and then the gathering of the wicked, and them being judged once and for all under the judgment of God. And today, in the opening verses of chapter 15, we see the culmination, the, the seventh and final vision of this set of cycles before a new set begins with the seven bowl judgments. And so, this culminating picture that we get is the song of the saints, what I call the choir of the conquerors. It is these who are now singing, looking and beholding the perfect justice of God and revealing the reality that they have been redeemed from the earth and they now sit secure in the arms of their Lord for all eternity. So with that being said, let's go ahead, let's look at these first four verses and uh, go on explaining from there. John writes, Then I saw another sign in heaven, great and amazing, seven angels with seven plagues, which are the last, for which them the wrath of God is finished. And I saw what appeared to be a sea of glass mingled with fire. And also those who had conquered the beast and its image and the number of its name, standing beside the sea of glass with harps of God in their hands. And they sing the song of Moses, the servant of God, and the song of the Lamb, saying, Great and amazing are your deeds, O Lord God the Almighty. Just and true are your ways, O King of the nations. Who will not fear, O Lord, and glorify your name? For you alone are holy. All nations will come and worship you. For your righteous acts have been revealed. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Alright, so what's interesting here is we have a situation, another a literary device that John uses that he has used elsewhere in Revelation. That is, before closing a set of visions and beginning a set of visions, he actually gives us a preparatory sign of a new set of visions to come. And that's what we actually have in verse 1. Is he prepares us for the next cycle of visions that is going to begin, which are the seven bowl judgments. So here he gives us an opening preparatory vision of seven angels holding seven bowls or the seven plagues with the last seven plagues he refers to them as. And we saw this very similar thing back in Revelation chapter 8 
between the seal judgments and the trumpet judgments. Before the seventh seal was opened, the sign and the picture of the trumpet judgments were introduced. Then, we see the seventh seal, then the beginning of the trumpets, right? And the same thing happens here. He gives us a preparatory vision of the seven bold judgments to come. Then he will give us the closing consummation of the last set, set of visions with the song of the saints. And then he'll pick back up in verse 5 with the bold judgments. And so he gives us these interlocking uh, vision cycles. And, and, and I think the reason that he does that is because throughout these vision cycles, there's something very important that John is doing within them. Even though these vision cycles are often telling the same story from a different perspective, throughout the cycles, they are escalating in their intensity. They are escalating. As we are growing to the, the end of the book, these cycles, which are telling the same story in many ways over and over again, they are escalating, which, which is meant to add a further burden on the heart of the reader to have assurance in Christ, to, to go and to share to the world, come to Jesus, trust in Jesus, repent and believe in Jesus. And so these escalating visions are interlocked because John wants to show they're connected. They're not just chrono, they're not chronological, they're connected. And that's so important in the way that he interlocks these rather than just going from one to the next to the next to the next. It's also important to note that in between those two interlocking visions that he did between the seal and the trumpet judgments, as well as the one that he does now with this closing judgment and the cycle of the plagues to come, he does these interlockings surrounding them with this little interesting interlude between the seventh seal and now this seventh vision, both of which mark the joy of the saints. The saints being avenged by God. And so what is being said in all of this is before launching into these sense of plagues, John wants to introduce them before singing the songs of the saints, the, the song of Moses and the Lamb. Why? Because he wants to constantly remind the reader, if you're in the Lamb, if you're in Christ, all the judgment to come and that has already been revealed, you have no part in. You have no part in that. In other words, he has them sing the song of Moses before he shows them the picture of the plagues. Why? You're already going to be victorious. You're going to make it through the sea. You're going to be on the other side when it's all said and done, church. That's the great comfort of this letter over and over again. Before a single one of the bold judgments are announced, we're already singing the song of Moses. Why? Because we already are in the victory. We're not waiting it. We already have it. So he wants to close the cycle of vision, the seventh consummating cycle, while also introducing the same recapitulating cycles of judgments to come. So let's look at these, uh, this kind of preparatory vision real fast that he says here. He says in verse 1, I saw another sign in heaven, great and amazing. Whenever you see great and amazing after this, we saw this back in chapter 12, verse 1. This is denoting that an entire new cyclical vision 
is being laid before us. A new cyclical vision, a recapitulating cycle is being presented in its starting place. We saw that back in 12 verse 1. Now we see it here. Seven angels with seven plagues, which are the last. For them the wrath of God is finished. So, here we have these seven plagues, which we are going to see beginning in chapter five, or 15, verse 5, that these seven plagues are the bowl judgments, the seven bowls. And we shouldn't be shocked, right, when the plagues are introduced not as bowls, but as plagues. Why? Because what is John about to envision the saints singing in the consummation? The song of Moses. The song of the Lamb. In other words, the plagues to come, the saints will be untouched by. They are not touched by the judgment of God. And so this is why he's wanting to connect these two cycles of judgment together. It's also important to know when he says that these plagues are last, he's not referring to the very last moment of history. This is often one of the things that our futurist brothers, those who see all of this as only being future, they often miss. When it says last, it's not just saying these are the last seven things that are going to happen in human history. That's a misunderstanding of the nature of the symbolism. When it says that they are the last plagues, it simply means that this is the last visionary cycles of judgment that John has given. He's given us two already. The seal judgments, the trumpet judgments, and this will be the last, the bowl judgment. And every one of those seven cycles of judgment have intensified and escalated. And the highest and most escalated of them will be the bold judgments. Which is why it says, the full wrath of God is in them. Right? The full wrath of God. Which is also why they're described as bold judgments. Right? Bold judgments. The first set, the sealed judgments are a picture to denote those who are marked out for judgment. The trumpet judgments are primary there to warn and to call and to bring light and to, to call the world to repent from the judgment to come. The bold judgments are there to just simply mark the severity of the wrath to come. Same stories, different perspective, and different purpose. One marks out who the judgments will belong to. One calls them to repentance. The final says this is how terrifying it will be. The severity of God's wrath. So last is not chronology in the sense of time in the world. It just simply is in chronology in the nature of the letter itself. It is the last because within them the wrath of God will be finished. The fullness of it. We've already seen the wrath of God be put forth, though, constant times in these texts. We've seen Him crush and trample those that He has come to do. We've seen Christ return at least two or three times in this letter already. And the reason why is because it's telling the same story over and over again from different angles. And we will look back at this. I don't want to go too deep in this tonight because we're going to go back to this next week Picking back up in verse 5. Because now he puts that vision on hold to close out the final set of visions behind. And so let's look now at the closing picture of this verse, of this seven set that we've been looking at with the saint's song of victory. Verse 2 through 4. And I saw what appeared to be a sea of glass mingled with fire. 
and also those who had conquered the beast and its image and the number of its name, standing beside the sea of glass with harps of God in their hands. And they sing the song of Moses, the servant of God, and the song of the Lamb, saying, Great and amazing are your deeds, O Lord God the Almighty. Just and true are your ways, O King of the nations. Who will not fear, O Lord, and glorify your name? For you alone are holy. All nations will come and worship you, for your righteous acts have been revealed. Alright, so here, chapter, verses 2-4 through four of chapter 15, is the next step of what happens after that great harvest that we saw ending in verse 20. Here, we see the, the beast's ultimate defeat as having been accomplished, and the saints are now enjoying the results of God's victory, and they are singing it and praising God for that victory. Notice here, the beast is still not active in this picture. He's been conquered. He's been defeated, showing us that this indeed is a picture of the consummation of the age, uh, not a, a time well before that when the beast is still actively at work. And the first thing I want you to note is the setting of the saint's song, this choir of conquerors. It says, I saw what appeared to be a sea of glass mingled with fire. Now this tells us now that the, this is a picture that the, the saints have now been brought into the throne room of God. Because we've already seen this sea of glass before. Revelation chapter 4, verse 6. And before the throne there was, as it were, a sea of glass like crystal. Now, we saw this sea elsewhere in the tabernacle language and in the temple primarily. Within Solomon's temple, there was this, this basin of water there that was symbolic of the oceans, of the sea. And what does the sea symbolize in the Bible? Well, well two things primarily. One, sea is the place of chaos. The place where evil arises. That's why in Revelation 13, where is it that the beast arises from? He arises from the sea, the ocean. So uh, the sea is the picture of chaos, that which is uh, of, of unorder. But the sea also is a picture of the nations. It's a picture of the nations which shows us that the beast will not only rise out of chaos, out of wickedness, but he will rise out of the nations. And the reason why we see the sea of glass in Revelation 4 before the throne of God is because it's wanting to denote God's sovereignty over the chaos and over the nations. God is absolutely sovereign over that, which, that where the beast rises, that where Leviathan plays. Sovereign over the nations. And here we see something fascinating to me. It says that the sea of glass was what? It was mingled with fire. Fire. What that's a picture of is wickedness and the nations having been judged. They are under the fire of judgment. Now, they've been cast into the fire. 
The reason why we know this is a picture of wickedness in the nations is listen to this description. Revelation 17, 15. And the angel said to me, the waters that you saw, expounding on this, where the prostitute is seated are peoples and multitudes and nations and languages. This is the nations that were under the allure of Babylon the prostitute, of the worldly system. And the fact that it's mingled with fire is a picture that she's been judged. She is in the fire and the saints are now beholding the judgment of God. The judgment of God. But should we be shocked that the sea is the place where the nations are judged? What happens in the Exodus account? Who gets swallowed up in the sea? Is it the people of God? Or is it the nations pursuing them? Right? Egypt. You see, that's the picture here. We are currently among the nations. We're in the sea in many ways. Physically speaking. But our citizenship is in heaven. Which is why, through the Lord, we are passing through the waters. And will be kept from the waters. But the nations will actually be swallowed up by that which they love. They will be swallowed up. Exodus 15, 4-8. Pharaoh's chariots and his host he cast into the sea and his chosen officers were sunk in the Red Sea. The floods covered them. They went down in the depths like a stone. Your right hand, O Lord, glorious in power. Your right hand, O Lord, shatters the enemy. In the greatness of your majesty, you overthrow your adversaries. You send out your fury. It consumes them like stubble. And at the blast of your nostrils, the waters piled up. The floods stood up in a heap and deeps congealed in the heart of the sea. You know where that comes from? The Song of Moses. Singing of Egypt's destruction in the sea. And it is the judgment of the wicked nations, the judgment of the beast, the judgment of the dragon being seen in the, the sea mingled with fire that the saints are praising over. They're praising that judgment has come and it's been finalized. They're singing of their deliverance. This picture of fire comes straight out of Daniel chapter 7. We read of a stream of fire issued and came out from before Him, the Son of Man. A thousand thousand served Him and ten thousand times ten thousand stood before Him. And the court set in judgment and the books were opened. This picture of sea mingled with fire is a picture of the judgment of the nations. They have been judged and the saints are not in the judgment, rather they're beholding it. They're beholding it. They are next to the sea mingled with fire. It's important to know one final thing. John has not yet given us a picture of the new heavens and earth. And he will refuse to until the very end. Because that's the jubilee year. That's what he wants to close the book with. But listen to what is said of the new heaven and new earth. Revelation 21.1 1. 
Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. There'll be no water in heaven? Yeah, there'll be water in heaven. That's not the picture. The picture is that place of chaos, the, the, the unruly nations that are in rebellion against God, they're not there. They're not there anymore. And guess what? No beast will ever rise again. Because there's no sea. Chaos is done away with. There is only peace forevermore. So this gives us a picture of the consummation as the people behold the judgment of God, but stops before revealing the new heaven and earth. Because it wants to leave us on the cliff. That's what John wants to do. He wants to hold on and see what waits before you, church. But there will be judgment, and we will behold it. And notice where we are standing, right? It says, standing beside the sea of glass are those who had conquered the beast and its image and the number of its name. Those who had conquered the beast. Who is that? That's everybody. That's everybody in Christ. Why? Because He conquered. Revelation 5, 5, And one of the elders said to me, Weep no more. Behold, the Lion of the tribe of Judah, the Root of David, has conquered, so that He can open the scroll and its seven seals. Christ has conquered. And therefore, Everyone in Him has conquered. Listen to what it was said of the, uh, the, the, the army, His holy army back in Revelation 14. Revelation 14, 1-5. I heard a voice from heaven like the roar of many waters and like the sound of loud thunder. The voice I heard was like the sound of harpists playing on their harps and they were singing a new song before the throne and before the four living creatures and before the elders. No one could learn that song except the 144,000 who had been redeemed from the earth. It is these who have not defiled themselves with women, for they are virgins. It is these who follow the Lamb wherever He goes. This is a picture of the saints, the fullness of the saints, gathered together, pure and undefiled, pure virgins, betrothed to the Lamb. You see how Mary is a picture of the church to come, right? Pure virgin, betrothed, totally surrendered to the Lamb, totally surrendered to the Lord. That's what the church is called to be. And that's who we are. We don't go after the beast. We're not allured by its temptations. We stand against it. And we have conquered because we've conquered in Christ. We are more than conquerors in Christ Jesus, the scriptures say. More than conquerors. Not barely conquerors. More than it. We will overcome by the blood of the Lamb. And the word of our testimony. And we will stand on the day when he stands in victory. We'll be there. We'll be there because we conquered in him. Which is why, what does Paul say of the church in, in, in the letter to the Romans? That you will be given power what to tread on the heads of serpents. Who's the one who crushed the serpent's head? It was Jesus. Who's the one who gives us the power? Jesus. Saw His doing. But we get to partake in the victory. We get to partake in it. Because it was all His. And we are all His. So important to know when it talks about how we are those who 
conquer the beast, its image, its number, right? It's these are those who in no way ever were enticed by the beast, but instead overcame him fully and completely. And thus, we have escaped the fire. We have escaped the judgment of the sea. And what this language should do is take you right back to Daniel chapter 3 and the story you all heard in Sunday school regarding Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Here's the story, real quick. Daniel chapter 3, verse 12. There are certain Jews whom you have appointed over the affairs of the province of Babylon. This is the high priest coming to Nebuchadnezzar saying, you got some Jews who, hey, they're not doing their part here. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. These men, O king, pay no attention to you. They do not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you've set up. That's the picture here. That's where John's getting this language from. You're not, these are those who don't go after the world, Nebuchadnezzar. They don't go after Babylon. They won't bow the knee. That's the call of the church. Jumping to verse 26 of chapter 3 of Daniel. Then Nebuchadnezzar came near to the door. We know what happens, right? Nebuchadnezzar says, all right, throw them in the fire. Fire's made so hot, literally the guy's making it get burned up. That's a bad job. Or bad fire, I don't know. Maybe both. They get burned up, and nevertheless, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are thrown into the fiery furnace as judgment for not bowing the knee to Babylon, for not bowing the knee to Nebuchadnezzar and his image. Nebuchadnezzar came near the door of the burning fiery, burning fiery furnace, and he declared, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, servants of the Most High God, come out and come here. Then Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego came out from the fire. And the satraps, the prefects, the governors, and the king's counselors gathered together and saw that the fire had not any power over the bodies of those men. The hair of the hedge was not singed. Their cloaks were not harmed. And no smell of fire had come upon them. Nebuchadnezzar answered and said, Blessed be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who has sent his angel and delivered his servants, who trusted in him and set aside the king's commands and yielded up their bodies rather than serve and worship any god except their own. That's the whole call of the book of Revelation. That's the whole call who would rather yield up their own bodies to death than bow the knee to any other god but their own. That's the call of the Christian life. That's what it means to take up your cross and follow Him. That I'll die, I'll give up everything for Christ. And I'll bow the knee to nothing else. That's the call of the saints. That's how Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are foreshadows and types of what we were all called to be as faithful followers of Christ who would gladly yield up ourselves rather than ever bowing the knee to the world. These are those who have conquered, who are ready to sing the song as they stand beside the sea of glass. And as they stand beside the sea of glass, mingled with fire, beholding the judgment, this is what they will burst forth and sing of the victory of the Lord. How wonderful and great is His deeds. Notice that they have harps in their hands. We've already seen that picture back in Revelation 14 
A picture of them playing the harps, which was a, a, an instrument of victory, an instrument of peace. And we will be playing it in joy and delight that our vindication has come. We see another picture of this song prophesied of in Isaiah 51, verse 9 through 11. Isaiah writes, Awake, awake, put on strength, O arm of the Lord, awake as in the days of old, the generations of long ago. Was it not you who cut Rahab in pieces, who pierced the dragon? Was it not you who dried up the sea, the waters of the great deep, who made the depths of the sea a way for the redeemed to pass over? And the ransomed of the Lord shall return and come to Zion with singing. Everlasting joy shall be upon their heads. They shall obtain gladness and joy and sorrow and sighing shall flee away. That's the prophecy of this to come. Notice, are you not the one who's cut up Rahab and pierced the dragon? Who is Rahab? It's it's another name of the, the, the sea beast in the Old Testament. Just like Leviathan, the dragon. Satan is always portrayed as this massive sea monster. Because that's where the chaos is. That's where the unruly nations are. It's the sea. And he has pierced. Leviathan. He has crushed Rahab. He has pierced the dragon. And we now sing in joy over him who has let us pass through the waters to safety. A greater exodus has come through a greater Moses, Jesus Christ. And now we behold the name of their song. So we've seen the context of their song. Now we see the name of their song. And the first thing that it is referred to here is they sing the song of Moses, the servant of God, right? So let's just flip over, keep your finger there, and let's just go look at it together. Let's look at the song of Moses, Exodus chapter 15, uh, and we'll just look at verses 1 through 18, the, really the, the main thrust of Moses' song. Remember, we'll go ahead and just give you the context here. Beginning in verse 30 of chapter 14, Thus the Lord saved Israel that day from the hands of the Egyptians, and Israel saw the Egyptians dead on the seashore. So where are the Israelites standing? Next to the sea. Israel saw the great power that the Lord used against the Egyptians, so the people feared the Lord, and they believed in the Lord and in His servant Moses. Then... Moses and the people of Israel sang this song to the Lord, saying, I will sing to the Lord, for He has triumphed gloriously. The horse and his rider He has thrown into the sea. The Lord is my strength and my song. He has become my salvation. This is my God, and I will praise Him. My Father's God, and I will exalt Him. The Lord is a man of war. The Lord is His name. Pharaoh's chariots and his host he cast into the sea. And his chosen officers were sunk in the Red Sea. The floods covered them. They went down into the depths like a stone. Your right hand, O Lord, glorious in power. Your right hand, O Lord, shatters the enemy. In the greatness of your majesty, you overthrow your adversaries. You send out your fury. It consumes them like stubble. 
And the blast of your nostrils, the waters piled up, the flood stood up in a heap, the deeps congealed in the heart of the sea. The enemy said, I will pursue, I will overtake, I will divide the spoil. My desire shall have its fill of them. I will draw my swords, my hand shall destroy them. But you blew with your wind, the sea covered them, and they sank like lead in the mighty waters. Who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glorious deeds, doing wonders? You stretched out your right hand, the earth swallowed them. Remember else in Revelation 18, the great earthquake in the sixth trumpet judgment? What does it do? It swallowed up the inhabitants of the earth. Same picture, that's where that's coming from here. You've led in your steadfast love the people whom you've redeemed. You've guided them by your strength to your holy abode. The peoples have heard, they tremble pangs, they tremble pangs have seized the inhabitants of Philistia. Now are the chiefs of Edom dismayed. Trembling seizes the leaders of Moab. All the inhabitants of Canaan have melted away. Terror and dread fall upon them. Because of the greatness of your arm, they are still as stone. To your people, O Lord, pass by. Till the people pass by whom you have purchased, you will bring them in and plant them on your own mountain. The place, O Lord, which you have made for your abode. The sanctuary, O Lord, which your hands have established, the Lord will reign forever and ever. Song of Moses. And the reason why we're getting pictured to the Song of Moses here is because John is wanting to make a clear connection that the Song of Moses and the Song of Israel, which was sung next to the sea, after they had just witnessed the judgment of God on their enemies and experienced His mighty hand of redemption to bring them out of slavery into a new land, that that song which was sung was a type and a shadow of a future song which would be far greater and far better of a greater exodus, experiencing a greater judgment, feeling a greater redemption, beholding a greater Moses. Jesus Christ. The song of Moses was a shadow of greater things to come. A greater exodus. Moses looked forward to see it. It's Hebrews 11. He looked forward to see it. And we have beheld it and we will behold it when Christ returns. I love this. Another song of Moses Deuteronomy 32, 43-44, recapitulating the Exodus account again, it says, Rejoice with Him, O heavens. Bow down to Him, all gods, little g, for He avenges the blood of His children and takes vengeance on His adversaries. He repays those who hate Him and cleanses His people's land. Moses came and recited all the words of this song in the hearing of people. He and Joshua, the son of Nun. Deuteronomy 32 has a recapitulation of the song of victory by Moses, but this time he has a partner in the song. Joshua, the son of Nun. Yeshua, God saves. Once again, Another type and shadow of a greater Yeshua to come. A greater Joshua. Jesus. Who would come and repay those who hate Him and cleanse His people's land. 
a.k.a. a new heaven and new earth. But it is also the song of the Lamb. And it's important to note that for here, John sees not two different songs, but the same song, meaning that the song of Moses was the song of the Lamb. The song of Moses was a portrait and a picture that it is the Lamb who leads His people out. It is the Lord who does it. And what does is, what is Moses' song end with? The Lord reigns forever and ever. And that's a picture of Jesus. The Davidic King who's established an eternal kingdom who will reign forever and ever. The song of Moses was the song of the Lamb. And that song of the Lamb has been given to His people. It is a new song. A new song because it portrays greater realities than what even Moses had beheld and what Israel had known. It matches the same heart, the same sentiment of redemption, escape from judgment, vindication by the Lord. But it is far greater and newer in that it ushers in with us to a greater and eternal promised land, not just a temporary one. It's a new song, Revelation 14 called it. And this song of the Lamb was portrayed and pictured and and foreshadowed in the Psalms. Psalm 98, verse 1 through 2. Oh, sing to the Lord a new song, for he has done marvelous things. His right hand and his holy arm have worked salvation for him. The Lord has made known his salvation. And He has revealed His righteousness to the sight of the nations. We know that John was looking to that as a type of the song of the Lamb because it is those very words that we see reflected in the song itself. Notice the content of their song. Great and amazing are your deeds, O Lord God the Almighty. Just and true are your ways, O King of the nations. Who will not fear, O Lord, and glorify Your name? For You alone are holy. All nations will come and worship You. For Your righteous acts have been revealed. So the first thing that we see in their song is we see the praise of God. Right? The praise of God. Great and amazing are Your deeds. Right? Just and true are Your ways. Is this not the way in which all praise should begin? Even within our prayers. Father who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. The first aspect of all praise is marked by the glorious realities of who God is and what God has done. Great and amazing are your deeds. This reminds me of what we saw in Exodus 15 verse 11. Who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glorious deeds, doing wonders? Job 37.5 says, God thunders wondrously with His voice. He does great things that we cannot comprehend. Man, that's a great text. He does great things that we cannot comprehend. So if there's times that God does things that you don't understand, good! You're in good company can't comprehend it, it's precisely the reality you can say maybe this is God at work and not me pray for things that God can do not just what you can great and amazing are your deeds just 
and true are your ways. Here is the song, the, the choir of conquerors singing of the reality that God is just and true. That He does not let wickedness go unpunished. That He does not let bad and, and, and injustice go forth just forever and just nod His head and turn an eye to it. No, He is just and true in His ways. That's why in this life, we don't have to fight for vengeance. That's why we don't have to go after and, and, and become vigilantes, Batmans going around trying to right every wrong. God will do it in His own time. He will do it because He's just and true. We can trust in the vindication of the Lord and therefore throw away any vigilance we seek to take on ourselves. Revelation 16.7 I heard the altar saying, Yes, the Lord God Almighty is true and just are your judgments. Revelation 19.2 For His judgments are true and just. Even those who are condemned on the day of judgment will say yes and amen to the King because of how just and true His decrees are. He is just and true in every way. There is no injustice, no partiality, no respecter of persons in God. He is true and just. And that will be revealed clearly on the day of judgment. He says, you alone are holy. You alone are holy. There is no one like God. There is no one fully pure like God. He is unstained in any way. There is no blemish upon His garments. There is not a single thing by which the world touches Him or, or has anything upon Him. He is totally set apart, totally different, totally unique. There is no one else in the cosmos like Him. The triune God of heaven is unique in every way, set apart in every way, holy in every way. And there's no one else like Him. Hebrews 7.26 says this of the Son, For it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, exalted above the heavens. He has no need like those high priests to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins and those for, the, for those of his people, since he did not once and for all when he offered up himself. Christ is holy. He came and lived holy. Everything about him is holy. Why? Because he's God. And at any time, His holiness stumbled or overcame or He was stained. And not only, not only could He not be our sacrifice, He could not be our God. He is holy in every way because God is holy in every way. And the holiness of God will be revealed most clearly on the day of judgment. When we all behold God, when we all stand before Him and we all see Him, even as His conquered saints, even those, those who have conquered in Him and trusted Him and are in Him, we will be able to sing nothing but what the cherubs say, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. When we get to heaven, we will see and experience holiness like we never have before. And we will be amazed at the sight of our God who alone is holy. 
Finally, it says, your righteous acts have been revealed. We already saw that in Psalm 98, the picture of the new song, how His righteousness has been revealed to the nations. And His righteousness will not only be just revealed in the judgment to come, in the final act of of vindication for those who have come against Him and His people. But did you know God has already revealed His righteousness? Like, already. He has revealed His righteousness to the nations. You know how He's done it? Through the Gospel. Listen to what Paul says. His thesis statement of his letter to the Romans. Romans chapter 1, verse 16 and 17. For I am not ashamed of the Gospel. For it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. To the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Everyone in world history will experience the righteousness of God, either by receiving it by faith or feeling the brunt of it in judgment. You will either know the righteous wrath of the judge or you will know his righteous redemption imputed to you in Christ by faith. The righteousness has already been revealed in the gospel. The call is to receive it by faith. For the righteous shall live by faith. But if you will not receive it, you will receive a righteous judgment rather than a righteous imputation. And that's the call here. Notice also we see the names of God. He is referred to in this song as the Lord God the Almighty and also the King of the nations. Psalm twenty-two twenty-eight: 28 For kingship belongs to the Lord and He rules over the nations. Revelation 5, 9 and 10 says that Jesus has redeemed a people from every tribe, tongue and nation. Revelation 11.15, once again, the seventh trumpet, the consummation of a cycle. What does it say? The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and His Christ, and He shall reign forever and ever. Where did that come from? The Song of Moses. You see how it's all connecting? It's all tied together for John. The consummation of the age, the seventh trumpet, the seventh vision, the seventh seal, the seventh... Uh, bold judgment. All of it is this picture of consummation when the kingdoms of the nations have now come fully underneath the sovereignty of Christ as He has returned in glory, brought judgment upon wickedness, and redeemed His people into glory forever and ever. That's the picture. Revelation 17, 14, They will make war on the Lamb and the Lamb will conquer them. For He is Lord of lords and King of kings, and those with Him are called and chosen and faithful. He is the Lord God Almighty. El Shaddai. He's God Almighty. There's nothing else. No one else like Him. No one more powerful than Him. No one that even competes with Him. That's why any notion of this like back and forth between God and Satan is so foolish. So foolish. We aren't dualist. It's not like, well, Tuesday, Satan got a little bit more. 
Wednesday, God kind of fought back some ground. He's always over Satan. That's why the Old Testament has a picture of the Lord putting a hook in the nose of Leviathan. What's that a picture of? He doesn't go anywhere the Lord doesn't let him go. He's always in control. He's El Shaddai. He's God Almighty. And He's King of the nations. So there's no rulers, no people in this world that are getting the best of Christ. He's always in control. Right now He's in control. Working out His perfect will until He returns to consummate it. And we will sing forever over it. But He is the Lord God Almighty. He is the King of the nations. And finally in their song we see the response to God. And there are four particular responses which are found in this song, this choir of the conquerors. The first is the call to fear Him. Verse 4, Who will not fear, O Lord? Who would not fear, O Lord? It's important to understand what's being referred to here. Do you think that in the age to come, in the glory to come, you will not live for all eternity with a complete righteous, like righteous reverence for the holy God that you dwell in? You better believe it. You better believe for all eternity you will live with a righteous reverence for your Father in heaven. There will be no sense of like, I wonder if I should rebel against this God. There'll be none of that. That will never cross the minds of the saints. Why? Because there'll be a holy, reverential fear that forever permeates us for all eternity. Not a wicked fear. Not one that keeps us separated from God or leads to anger and animosity. But a filial fear. A fatherly fear. A deep, reverential respect that always knows no matter how much of a glorified state we are in, we'll never be Him. We'll never be Him. He alone is God. And we alone are here because of Him. A reverential fear that always knows our place. Jeremiah 10.7 Who would not fear you, O King of nations? For this is your due. For among all the wise ones of the nations and in all their nations, there is none like you. Y'all heard the statement, familiarity breeds contempt. The idea is that the more you get, know, you get to know somebody, the more you get used to them, you just kind of grow complacent and bored with them. To a point that you just kind of grow contemptful towards them, angry, kind of like, ugh. You know, it's what they always say happens long term in a marriage, but it's not being reinvented and all this. That's all wicked language. Just press them to your spouse and love them. Love them fully is who they are. But this is what, what Jeremiah 10 is saying when he says, For among all the wise ones in the nations and all their kingdoms, there's none like you. That that's the reason for our fear of the Lord. What that saying is, is there will never be a time in all eternity where we will ever grow too familiar with God. He's too eternal. He's too big. You know why you'll never grow bored for eternity? Because you will worship an eternal being. There will never be a facet of Him that you'll be like, oh, figured that out. 
It will be a non-stop eternity of learning something new about Him. Something more wonderful, more glorious about Him. Every single moment of eternity will be an aha, a wow, an amazing. That's what it's going to be like. There will never be familiarity. And the strangeness of God, don't take that in a, in, a, in a harsh way, but just the fact that He's so unique, so different, so incomprehensible, even to our glorified minds, that we'll never get to a place where we're just like, I, I could just be flippant with Him. It's His uniqueness, His strangeness, His incomprehensibility that always keeps us yearning and growing and longing for more because there's never a part of God that we can grow too familiar with. His glories are beyond all imagination. And we will never grow bored in heaven. If that's a concern for you, you don't know God. You won't grow bored. But you will fear Him with reverential fear. Not only that, but it says to glorify Him, right? And glorify your name. Psalm 86, 9 and 10. All the nations you have made shall come. And worship before you a picture of the people from every tribe, tongue, and nation coming to him. O Lord, and shall glorify your name. For you are great and do wondrous things. You alone are God. That's the key of glory. The key to knowing what it means to glorify God is the recognition that there's no one else like him. And that there's no one else who can do what he can do. He's totally different, totally unique, and he alone gets the glory. That apart from him, nothing happens. There's no salvation, there's no creation, there's no redemption, there's no new creation, there's no breath this very moment apart from him. That's why whether you eat or drink, do it all to the glory of God. Why? Because you don't got nothing apart from him. Everything about your life is a direct response to Him who gave it and made it possible. In all eternity, the call will be, the song will be, to give glory to the One who made this possible. No one will ever stand in glory going, man, I'm so glad I did good. Man, I'm so glad I figured this out. Man, I'm so glad I walked this right way and said that prayer and did these steps. The song for all eternity will be, Thank you, God. Thank you, God. You are great. You are good. You are glorious. You did it all from start to finish. You did it all. You're the reason. You're the reason. He gets the glory. Thirdly, it's a call to embrace Him. Embrace Him, right? For you alone are holy. All nations will come. Will come. Psalm 110, verse 2 and 3, this great Davidic psalm. The Lord sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter. Rule in the midst of your enemies. Your people will offer themselves freely on the day of your power. In holy garments from the womb of the morning, the dew of your youth will be yours. This is a... When I say embrace, it's a picture of free coming, a longing to approach Him, a desire that wants Him and nothing else, that clings to Him and nothing else. That will be the glories of heaven. 
The glories of the heaven are the reality that I don't care about shiny gates and pearly streets and golden buildings if Christ isn't there, if God isn't there. He's the reason. He's my longing. He's what I'm embracing. He's what I'm coming to. Isaiah chapter 2, verse 2 and 3. It shall come to pass in the latter's day that the mountain, mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains and shall be lifted up above the hills and all the nations shall flow to it. And many people shall come and say, Come, let us go to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of God of Jacob, that He may teach us His ways and that we may walk in His paths. This is what it means to embrace the Lord, to go after Him, to want nothing but Him, to want to be taught by Him, to want to be His disciples sitting at His feet to learn from Him and to long for more of Him. And then finally, it is a call to worship Him. All nations will come and worship you. Isaiah 66.23 gives us a picture of the new heavens and new earth when it says, from new moon to new moon, from Sabbath to Sabbath, all flesh shall come to worship before me, declares the Lord. You know what heaven's going to be? A non-stop worship session. It's just going to be worship on loop. And I'm not talking about Caleb, where you get the same five songs. Like, hey, they're good songs, but like, there's a lot of good songs. We've got to play some more. But it will be non-stop worship. It will be a continual, non-stop worship session. That's what heaven's going to be. So start enjoying worship now. I find it so fitting that in the providence of God, these two messages, morning and evening, would be connected. That the praise of Elizabeth, this shows us a picture of true worship. Worship that is powered by the Holy Spirit, that has the God as its object, right? That is fully surrendered, filled with humility and gratitude, longing to share with others, filled with joy, that that picture that we see in the heart of Elizabeth is the same picture we see in the saints of glory. Because true worship is true worship. It's true worship here as it will be in heaven. So let it start with us now. This is the choir of the conquerors. Brothers and sisters, if you are in Christ, you've already conquered. You've already conquered. So fight in the victory you already have. Closing points. Number one, God's great. He's great. He said a lot as a kid, God is great, God is good, thank you Lord for this food. Right? We say it flippantly and quickly, but God is great. We say great a lot, but great really only should have one person behind it. It's God. God really is the only great one. He is great. The triune God of heaven is great, totally different, so amazing, so awesome, so wonderful. He is great. He's great. You serve a great God, brothers and sisters. Two, Christ is victorious. He's won and He will win. He's won and He will win. There's never time ever from Calvary forward that Christ is like, man, today's not going well in the, in the battle. He's won. 
He has won. He's won. He's won. Christ is victorious. There's victory in Jesus, my Savior forever. Third, the saints will conquer. You will conquer him. You already have conquered. You will conquer though. You will overcome this life in Christ Jesus. You will. Listen to what Paul says in Romans 8. This great chapter we all love. Verse 35 to 39. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. If you're in Christ, you will conquer. You will conquer. And nothing will ever separate you from Him. What a promise. What a promise. And therefore, finally, joyful worship is the only response. God is great. Christ is victorious. You will conquer. So sing for joy. Worship. Live a life of utter and absolute praise because God is great. Christ is victorious and you will conquer in Him. How can you not worship? How does your heart not moved of those realities? Can you not be passionate? How can you not want to tell the world of those glorious, those glorious truths? We will worship forever with joy. But God's already given you everything you need now for joy. Don't wait to worship. Start now. So that your worship in eternity is just nothing but a carryover of what you've already been doing. Apart from being glorified and not having any pain or suffering or any of that, it should almost feel natural to go to sing forever with the saints in glory. Let's pray that that's natural to us as we start it right here. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you so much for your word. We thank you for the truth in the midst of all of these crazy battles that we've seen from this last cosmic cycle. The rise of the beast and the false prophet and the dragon which makes war on us. This, this unholy trinity that seeks to serve as a counterfeit to lead the world away. Lord, I am so thankful to know that we are secure that we are the Lamb's holy army with His name stamped upon our heads and our, and our hands, that our thoughts and our deeds are wholly given over to Him, that we will conquer through Him who is victorious, who has conquered, that we will stand for all eternity singing in light of the glories of You, God, of everything, the, the incomprehensible, immaculate wonders that flow from Your being. Lord, tune our hearts to worship. Hearts that are so prone to wonder. Tune them to worship. That we may constantly sing Your praise with joy and live a life of total surrender. Lord, let the hope of the glory to come change everything about how we live now. To not live like this is just it. 
to not fear and fret like the world does, but to live with a relentless joy, with no fear, and with settled confidence of exactly what is to come, because you have said so. And your word we trust. In Christ we trust. We thank you and we praise you. Help us be your worshiping people now and forever. You, our great God and King of nations. In your name we pray. Amen.